This is part four in the last in our series we call Dare to Live Now. And it's more of a question for all of us today. Are you living a frog-saturated life? Ribbit. Ribbit. Yeah, well, it'll make sense. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 8, and you'll see what I'm getting at. And I want to show you that the most dangerous word in the English language is found right here in Exodus chapter 8. If it weren't sad, it would be funny. In this part of the Exodus, the Israelites have been living in slavery for 430 years. Well, they want freedom. Here we've got one of the great labor management conflicts of all time. Labor, well, that's the Israelites, and they've got a bad contract. They work and then die. Moses, he's their top union guy, but he doesn't have much leverage. Management, on the other hand, is represented by Pharaoh, and he's a hardline negotiator. So God gives Moses some very powerful bargaining chips called the plagues, kind of levels the playing field. In one of them, the water in Egypt turns to blood, the fish die, the stench fills all of Egypt. Other plagues involve gnats, flies, typical typical weather in patterns of San Antonio, locusts and boils. And in the midst of it, one of the most memorable plagues is found here in Exodus chapter 8. And in this account is the key word I want to focus on today. Exodus 8, verse 6 through 10. Aaron stretched out his hand over the water of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. Well, the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and says, Look, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I'll let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. So Moses speaks to Pharaoh, and he says, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except those that remain in the Nile River. And then just the first part of verse 10, Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And that's the key word, tomorrow. I'd like to ask Pharaoh one question. What the heck were you thinking? The frogs are out of control. Look in verse 3. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace, in your bedroom, onto your bed, into the houses of your officials, on your people, in your ovens and kneading troughs and washer machines and microwaves, everywhere. You get the picture? Uh, Christian author Ken Davis puts it like this. Pharaoh can't even back his chariot out of the garage without killing a hundred frogs. His pizza's covered with frogs. His wife and oldest daughter are standing on chairs screaming ever since the plague began. His youngest daughter's run out of jars to collect and accidentally suffocate the frogs. The frogs are everywhere. And yet when Moses offers to get rid of them, old Pharaoh says, tomorrow. I wonder, does he enjoy frog legs? Is the sound of a screaming wife and daughter music to his ears? What could possibly motivate this guy to wait till tomorrow, knowing he could resolve the problem today? 
And that's a pretty good question for every one of us. What is going on in your life that you uh, could resolve today, but you want to keep waiting till tomorrow, which never comes? Why spend another night with the frogs? Pharaoh's response is not so unusual. I've been to cancer ward and prayed with people who continue to smoke through a tracheotomy hole cut in their throat. Strange looking. And I wondered why. Because the very habit that has put them there and is taking their life still provides a moment of pleasure. So they settle for another night with the frogs. Intelligent people sacrifice reputation, health, and fortune to continue illicit relationships. They do it even when they know sooner or later it's going to hit the press. Even after the relationship turns sour and they've lost everything, they choose to spend another night with the frogs. I've had Christian women who were dating unsaved, unemployed, and abusive men, hello, ask if I should continue to date this man. And I want to say, will you be having frogs with that? Are you insane? Well, that kind of thing has puzzled the human race a long time. David Paris has written a book called Motivated Irrationality. Not only is it irrational, it's motivated irrationality. It's where people persistently tolerate and maintain behavioral patterns that will destroy their life. Uh, a woman is sinking deep in unmanageable debt, debt's destroying and choking her life. Yet she goes out and acquires another credit card to get deeper in debt. These are all maxed out, so I'll get another one. I remember a few years ago, a major relief baseball pitcher made racially hostile comments to a news reporter that destroyed his reputation and jeopardized the future of his career. His whole future rested on his ability to learn a little civility. A few months later, he sees the same reporter. And what does he do? Does he express himself differently with contrition and repentance? Oh, no. He threatens the reporter physically on television, public view. And I want to ask this moron, will you be having frogs with that? Huh? Moses said to Pharaoh, you don't have to live with frogs anymore. Hey, I've got frog be gone. Say the word. They're out of here. You ready? Well, Pharaoh says, I'd have to give up my labor force. I'm not ready for that. Maybe if I wait, the frogs will go away. Maybe they'll hop over to Assyria. Maybe the frog fairy will come and just make them all go away. What are they thinking? Pharaoh has learned he can live with the frogs. He can tolerate a frog-saturated life. Not much joy in it, but he can survive. And he prefers it to the change that would require repentance. I'll wait till tomorrow, he says. I'll spend another night with the frogs. Wonder how many of you are sleeping with the frogs. Don't raise your hand. Probably the most dangerous word in the English language, and we've talked about it before in this series, is the word tomorrow. Yeah, we suffer with what might be called spiritual procrastination. I know it's killing me. I know it's bad. I know it's not going to end up good. I know, I know. I'm going to deal with it tomorrow. Tomorrow. You know, I don't understand it, but I know it goes on all the time. Procrastination is the failure to do the right thing at the right time. 
And it's amazing how much damage that trait, procrastination, can do. Our problem is not that we don't know what to do. Our problem is not that we don't want to do it. Our problem is that we will do it tomorrow. But then we don't even do it then. And that trait may be causing you to mismanage finance, causing you to live under tremendous pressure, robbing you of the joy of being a generous person. It could be causing you problems at work. It could damage relationships. It can mean that words of affirmation and love never get spoken. Conflicts never get resolved. Commitments never get honored. It can cost friendships, damage the effectiveness of a parent, can cripple a marriage. Those are just external problems. But there are internal problems that occur from the tomorrow syndrome. You end up living with a constant anxiety that you're not going to beat the deadline. Stress levels go way up. You get a chronic sense of guilt because you know you're not doing what you should do. So it takes away your sense of joy. It then erodes your self-esteem. You don't feel good about yourself. And worse, it keeps you from ever realizing the purpose for which God created you. But not because you said no to God. You just said tomorrow. So where in your life are you saying tomorrow when God wants you to say today? Hebrews 3, verse 15. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Are you aware that every time you know to do, the, I'm talking about you know to do the right thing, you know it, no, no, no ambiguity, no fuzzy, cloudy feeling, you know. Every time you know and you say no, your heart gets harder. Your will gets more hard. Everything gets set, and it's going to be harder and harder and harder to change. That's how an addiction forms. It's just little by little. I've used this illustration on candy. If you just ate a Snickers bar or you ate a, a, a big chocolate candy bar, if our pants suddenly blew out two inches, we'd throw it down, scream, and tear a run, never buy another one again. Nobody would have to go to a seminar or Weight Watchers or nothing. But it doesn't happen that way. You eat it, nothing happens, apparently, just little by little. And you dance into that room, and all of a sudden, you're trying to put a size 10 body and a size 8 dress, and it ain't working too good. You can't button your pants, and you wonder, how did that happen? And just because you kept saying tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow, because you didn't feel instantly any, you could tolerate it, and then one day you turn around and you got high blood pressure, maybe a little type 2 diabetes, you, you need a new wardrobe, if you blow a button you'll kill somebody, it's just terrible. But it just little by little. So God says, today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your heart, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, when God calls you today and you don't respond today, you get a little harder inside. So you've got to realize somehow in our mind, today is the only day I've got. I don't have tomorrow. Not a promise of it. One of our police officers lost his life the other day at two in the morning uh, in a tragic accident out on 35. Uh, young, married, family, had no idea, a part of our security team, not, not a clue that this young life would end just like that. I had prayed with him on the phone a week before about another issue in his career, and he's gone. He didn't plan on being gone. I didn't give a thought he wouldn't be here. 
He didn't give a thought to it. It just wasn't on the plate. There was no tomorrow for him. And it may not be for you. You say, well, that sounds a little morbid, Rick. I'm an optimist. Ask my wife. I am an optimist. I, I am. I mean, I don't, I, the glass is always half full, not half empty. It's always. But I'm telling you, if you, you're a fool, if you ignore what the Creator said, your life's a vapor, and don't brag about tomorrow. Today is the only day you got. You know, if you're going to ask that girl to marry her, ask her today. And I'm talking to a few people. Today. Make that commitment today. If you're going to break off a bad relationship that's abusive and going nowhere, do it today. It gets harder to do the longer it goes. If you're going to change a career, then go ahead and change it. But don't dilly-dally around saying tomorrow. If you're going to give your life to Jesus, do it today because you don't have tomorrow. And then it's too late, right? This is a real easy message. So, Let's talk about where you're putting up with frogs. In some area where God says there's something in this area you have been needing to take action for a long time and you haven't done it. Number one, the first area involves habits or negative behavioral patterns that God's calling you to change. And that involves all of us at some time, patterns of thinking, habits, negative behavioral patterns that need a tune-up or definite change in all of our lives. King Saul was the first king of Israel. The Bible says he stood head and shoulders above all the other men of Israel. Early, he had a heart for God in his career. He prophesied. He was humble. But then one day, a young man named David killed a giant and became a national hero. And people sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. His church was bigger than his church. And the Bible says from that day on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Saul could have befriended David, could have trained him, been a mentor to him, handed over the reins of leadership to him, but he didn't. Envy got started in Saul, and he just never got around to dealing with it. So here's a good question. Did envy help King Saul at all? Did it advance his career? Did it add any joy to his life? Did it make him more effective as a king? Did it benefit any of his relationships? Heck no, it destroyed him. So we can read and learn. Let me tell you the best, the best education, learning from somebody else's stupidity. I don't have to do that. If your parents had a lousy marriage, you, should le- you shouldn't carry a bad marriage into your you, you say, well, I learned what I don't want and what I won't do. Let it motivate you to something better. If they couldn't handle money, if they couldn't handle drugs or alcohol, or they couldn't uh, deal peaceably with one another or with children, let that be a motivating factor for you to say that I'm not going to pass that on to my kids in the next generation. I'm gonna, that's going to end today. You know, I've, my father was married five times. Lord, help us. Or help that woman. What? what? I, I begged him. I think he was 87. I begged him, please don't marry another woman. You are a train wreck. He's 97 now. He's moved his ex-wife back in with him. Can you believe that? You wonder what cloth I'm cut from. Boy, it's strange. I'm telling you, it's weird. It's just It's amazing if I'm even kind of normal, just kind of amazing, all right? 
So it's crazy to live in envy. It destroyed his heart. It consumed him with anger. It drove him to attempted murder of David. He even tried to kill his own son. It cost him the affection of his own people. And in the end, it cost him his throne, his life, and everything. Isn't that great? So why didn't he do something about that envy? I don't think he chose deliberately to live in envy at the outset. I don't think he said to himself, I'm intentionally going to develop a bitter, jealous heart towards David. I think he just learned day by day. He could tolerate it. He could live with it. There wasn't any joy in it, but Saul preferred it to the change that repentance would have required. So when God would prompt him, when he was rebuked by the prophet Samuel, when David refused to retaliate against him and he could have taken Saul's life, and showed mercy and grace to Saul, the Holy Spirit was working on Saul, speaking to his conscience. What are you doing? This guy loves you. He won't hurt you, and you're trying to kill him. And he kept rejecting it. And something inside would say, yeah, good idea, but not today. I'm not going to repent today. I would rather nurse the anger and bitterness and resentment inside of me than be freed of it, than have to go through the embarrassment and pain of repentance. Not today. Will you be having frogs with that, Saul? Because that's what he got. And finally, it killed him. So let me ask you, is there something in you or in your heart that is a pattern or a habit or an attitude that's leading you further away from God and His will for your life? It's making your heart a little colder and a little harder every day. I've watched people go through a bitter divorce, and regardless of who was at fault or whatever, one or the other holds great anger and hostility towards the other. Life is going to be filled with disappointments, betrayal. Uh, people will steal from you. People will treat you in an unrighteous way or uh, bigotry of some kind, racial prejudice. But I'm telling you, you become the victim, more, a volunteer, when you move from victim to nursing that rather than just forgiving somebody. It's not worth it. I, the forgiveness isn't for them, it's for you. It's to keep you free, right? It's like, no, 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 no. They, they did me wrong. I can't believe I've been treated in an unjust way. So you drink the poison and hope they die. And it kills you. God, God will still help you, love you, open other doors for you. But first, you've got to get out of prison and you've got to get rid of those frogs of bitterness and unforgiveness and hatred. Yeah, you're right, but you're wrong to hold the bitterness because now the enemy's got grounds to work in your life. And it's not a feeling, it's just a decision. I'm glad it isn't a feeling, or boy, I'd be in real trouble. It's not a feeling, it's just a choice. So you say, not today, maybe tomorrow. Maybe it's a pattern of deception, and you're getting used to it. Maybe you're relying on it. Maybe it's some addictive behavior with substance abuse, sexual Maybe it's judgmental spirit. Maybe it's turning you into a Pharisee. Maybe you've got a bitter heart towards someone. I mentioned that, and it's a little more bitter now than a month ago. Maybe it's a spirit of discontent, choking gratitude out of you, so you're not even thankful for what you do have. Maybe it's a toleration of sin in some area of your life. The Bible says, today, today, if you will hear His voice, don't harden your heart. So you need to say, I need to say right now, today, I'm not going to live under the illusion that it's going to go away by itself. 
I will confess it to God. It ain't going away tomorrow. I'm going to deal with it today. And I'm going to talk to a trusted person. I'm going to start praying day by day by day for change. But whatever help you need, get it. But do it today. So that's the first area. The second area involves work. Anybody ever struggle with procrastination at work? I was thinking about this about an hour ago when I put this message together. (laughs) Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10 says, whatever your hand finds for you to do, do it with all your might. Then Ephesians 6 verse 5 through 7, Paul says, work diligently as unto the Lord. By the way, work is not a curse. Adam had work assignments before he fell. Work is good. God's into work. God worked six days. So work is not a curse. I've heard that, and I thought, you better get your theology right. That is not a curse. All of us would love to be in a work situation where whenever you come to work, you're just pouring out with ideas and energy. Your motivation levels are peaking, and you can't wait to get at it. And sometimes that does happen, but a whole lot of times it doesn't. And here's what I've learned at work. Procrastination is a refusal to play my part in partnership with what God wants to do with me. God wants to partner with you in an office, at home, in school, wherever it may be. God wants to be a partner with you. But procrastination is, I'm not going to play the part God wants to play with me. And after a while, you settle for less than working with all your might. Maybe it's a cynical attitude. Maybe it's a spirit of complaint about your boss or about your company or coworkers that starts to infect other people around you. Maybe you're just punching the clock and you've stopped growing. Maybe you're in the wrong job and you know it. I'm sick of TGIF. How about TGIM? Thank God it's Monday. I'm doing what I was made to do and I love to do it. Cop out. Thank God it's Friday. Quitter. This may mean you're in the wrong job, right? If you know, now now listen, this is in balance. If you know God has made you to do certain things that match up with your gifts and your passions, and what you're doing is not tapping into it, and you definitely know it, and here's the condition. It's possible to seek change, but you don't. You're violating God's stewardship. You're violating God's will. I've known people who spent a year, some a decade, and some an entire life working at a job that did not match their passion, their gift, because they never got around to looking for something better. Why? Well, I'm afraid to let go of this abusive husband. Well, well, ribbit, will you be having frogs with that? Sometimes you have to let go, and you have to Trust God and step out in faith to what you know you want to be doing. You, you shouldn't be mean and cranky just because you're going to work. You know, I don't want to pay somebody to come in with a mean, cranky attitude and a bad spirit. I thought, dude, I, I didn't mess up your life. If this is not what you like doing, go somewhere else and be cranky and ugly. Don't, don't come here, right? Yeah, work can be hard, but, but you can enjoy what you do. You see football players come off the field with a broken arm or wrist or busted out teeth and bleeding. It was a hard day, but they love what they do. Of course, if I was getting $70 million, I'd probably love what I was doing too. (laughs) I'd let you hit me for $70 million. 
but they spend another night with the frogs for a whole career. And God wants all of us to work diligently as if you work for Him, because you know what? You do work for Him if you're a believer. Work diligently as unto the Lord. Not as unto Rick or your boss or whoever, as unto the Lord. Now, that gives it a whole different perspective. If he were your boss, how would you perform? Work just that diligently and with that much excellence. The third frog area is in your finances. Scripture is quite clear that as a believer in Jesus, you're to be intentional and proactive in your financial life. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. In other words, they've taken steps to get their financial lives in order and then to be generous towards God's work. Paul's saying, don't neglect your giving or wise financial management, which will bring a crisis in your life because you kept putting it off. There are people in huge financial problems in this room. We offer financial freedom classes, free instruction by trained professionals to get you out of debt, to show you some keys to managing your money, because debt bondage has got to be one of the worst bondages on earth. And you don't have to live there, and it's not God's will you live there, but God gives us principles for handling our money with blessing. That's where I want you blessed, and I want you to do well. Beloved, I pray above all things that you might prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. So God's not into debt bondage or poverty. God wants you to do well. Does that make sense? So why in the world are you going to tolerate frogs? Because you won't get help. If you men can't handle the money, and you keep causing problems, unpaid bills, people calling your wife for the home, and your wife happens to be very good at it, you're still the head of the home. Let her handle the books. Let her handle the checkbook. If she's responsible and good at that, switch up. Each of you have different strengths and different weaknesses. And the whole idea is let somebody else cover your weakness and you soar with your strength. How hard is that? You know, but get some financial planning going in your life. Cut up some credit cards if you need to. Put yourself on a strict, rigid diet and get yourself out of debt. People don't mean to get there, but they do. You don't end up with 35 cats in one day in your house. You've been bringing those suckers in little by little. 35 cats every night. I watch on the TV and they went into a house and they found 35 cats living in utter filth. And I'm thinking, they didn't, they didn't have a husband in that house either. Because I'd be a lot of meowing as those cats went out the door. They ain't coming in my house shedding, pulling on the drapes and all that stuff they put off, whatever you call that stuff. I got cats, but they're outside cats. They kill snakes and rats and lizards and stuff. And they, you can't pet them or they'll eat your arm off. You can't even pet them. That's the kind of cat I like. I'd like one about this big and about that. T- that and said, so I say, beware of cat, then the burglar wouldn't be thinking much, would he? Till that mountain lion showed up and took his rear end off. Yeah, he'd be saying, ouch. Proverbs 21, 13. If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. 
And because a lot of people mismanage their money, they've got to shut their ears to the cry of the poor. They've got nothing to give. And it's not because they said, I want to be greedy. It's not because they said, I never want to give anything. It's because they just said, I know I ought to get my finances in order. I know there's a class. I know there's help for that. I know there's even free help for that. And I'll do it tomorrow. And they never do it. And I want to say, you're going to, you're going to have frogs with that? Because that's what you've asked for. Most people never say we're going to defy God. We're going to mismanage our money in such a way that brings chaos into our home, threatens our integrity, jeopardizes our marriage, damages our children, and dishonors God. They just said, tomorrow. That word tomorrow is lethal. It's cancerous. It's toxic. And it's amazing how many people know what's coming up. Like the fact their children are going to grow up. They're going to need money for an education. They're going to, you're going to need money for a wedding, particularly if you have girls. See, the parents have to pay for the girl. I don't, they didn't get it out of the Bible. That's not the way it works in the Bible, but that's the way it works in American culture. So if you've got girls, you know you're going to have to spend some money. Are you preparing for that? Are you preparing for further education for these children? You know that's coming. You know it's coming. And you know there are resources that could help people in social programs in our city that we do every year. Or you could make a difference in the kingdom of God through your local church. And yet, these people never take a significant step towards a serious life of stewardship. They know they ought to. They're going to tomorrow, and they just never do it. We begged people. We said, hey, we'll give you free child care if you'll just tell us so we can pay the people to be here to cover the number of kids. Can't even get people to say, I want to put my child in. Can't get people to commit. You know, somebody asked me a week ago in the lobby, Pastor, can we have longer worship? You know what I said? I said, if you'll quit coming 15 minutes late, it'll be longer. <laughs> you can see why I'm not in counseling, right? Okay. So, don't do that. Get some financial advice. Cut up some credit cards. Get serious. Decide this year. No more frogs. And number four, last. We don't want to say tomorrow to joy. Psalms 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. We shall be glad and rejoice when? In it. It doesn't say tomorrow is the day we should be happy. It says today. Are you putting off joy? Some of you are saying, I'll rejoice when I get a boyfriend. I'll rejoice when I get that job. I'll rejoice when I finally get to retire, when I get the relationship I want, when I get the kids through school, when I get the possession I want, when I pay off the mortgage. And you're hearing a word over and over. I hope you're listening to it. When? When I. When I. I will. When. I will. When I. When I, when I. It's the tomorrow syndrome all over again. But you don't have when. You've just got now, this day. You just have the people in your life right now. You just have this day. And there are words that need to be said this day. Maybe you want to reach over right now and put your hand on that knee next to you and give it a little squeeze. Maybe you're next to a real attractive stranger and you want to reach over. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's hard keeping you folks awake. I know that. <laughs> what a gift it is to be alive, to be loved by God, 
to have a mind that works, a body that moves, a voice that can speak and bring joy to people? What in the world are you waiting on? Today, in a relationship, express words of love. Give it away, man. Give it away lavishly. If you've got a conflict, do your best to resolve it. At least do your part. If you've got somebody you love, create a memory. You've just got this day. Maybe you're putting off the joy of knowing God. You've been saying, someday, Rick, I'll give my life to God. Someday I'm going to get right with Him. But sadly, it just never comes. And one day you die. And the person never said, I'm going to go through life with a heart that's shut off from joy. I'm going to defy God. I'm going to keep my relationship superficial. I'm going to come Christmas and Easter. I'm going to be so busy, I'm exhausted and fatigued all the time. And I'm going to get a little grumpier and a little crankier every year. They never said that. It just happened. Because they never said, this is the day. This day, folks, is no accident. God made it. This is the day that Jesus died to redeem and was resurrected to give hope about. So, I will rejoice today. And Summit, this is your day. This is our day. And others have gone before us and others will come after us. But you just have this day. So don't you dare say, tomorrow. Instead, today, if you will hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.